Music by Una Monaghan there. And we'll be featuring an interview which we recorded with her at New Music Dublin later. Welcome to Amplify, the podcast from the Contemporary Music Centre. This is episode 15 and as always I'm joined by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hi Yvonne. Hi Jonathan. So Yvonne, today we have a conversation which we recorded earlier in the week with composer Matthew Whiteside. Yeah, Matthew is uh, a composer and he's a concert program, a record producer. He's based in Glasgow, originally from the north of Ireland and uh, is a CMC represented composer. And all these different aspects of his creative life, they're kind of seamlessly connected. And he'll discuss these different aspects and um, and how they've been affected in the in the current crisis uh, during the course of the conversation that we had with him during the week. But, you know, John, I was really struck by Matthew's optimism. He's he's always a very kind of can-do type of person and really a doer in terms of making things happen, not just for his own works, but also music um, by fellow composers and by performers active in new music in Scotland, in Ireland, across the UK and, and across the world. And it seemed to me that, you know, for the moment, Matthew has retained that real spirit of optimism as he sort of makes his contingency plans, as you call them, and looks to the future. And uh, he also talks about the uh, digital space uh, and if the crisis will result in a more fairer approach to paying artists. And Matthew had some interesting insights into the world of online streaming and that comes at the end of the conversation. So here now is the conversation with Matthew Whiteside. So we're joined today, thanks to the magic of technology from Glasgow by composer Matthew Whiteside. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Maybe just start by introducing yourself, tell people who you are and what you do. I'm a composer and put on concerts. So moved to Glasgow about 10 years ago to do my master's in the conservatory here and just didn't leave because I thought Glasgow would be quite a nice, fruitful environment, putting on concerts and promoting my own work um recently i've been putting on concerts uh, as the night with contemporary music in basement venues of pubs clubs art galleries etc and been kind of growing quite nicely over the last four years so how are you dealing with the current uh, crisis with covid19 and how much has changed for you in terms of your ongoing day-to-day work as a composer i'm in a really fortunate position actually where not much has changed because about a month ago I got funding for the night this year's the night with season and at around the same time I got funding for a commission as well the season for the night with is going to be starting in October and the commission is for one of those concerts so I'm mainly working on booking those concerts and writing that music so I'm working on the assumption that everything is going to be roughly back to normal by around then and if it doesn't and if it doesn't well that's another thing to think about i haven't quite got crossed that bridge yet <laughs> i'm hoping that that's what will happen based on the timeline in china anyway of roughly two and a half to three months from 
lockdown to starting to release things, I recognise how fortunate a position I am just because of the way the timing has worked out. So in reality, nothing has changed much for me at the moment. I'm in my flat working on the admin, trying to write some music and... I'm not going to the gym because it's not open, so I'm going for runs around the block. That's about it, really. However, like things like Classical Next, which I was meant to be going to, has been cancelled. Mostly not going to. I was meant to be going to New York in June as well, which I've postponed for the moment. Yeah, June just feels too close to kind of book flights and get all that in place. Um, so we've just pushed that back toward the end of the year or start of next year, maybe, depending on how things line up. And then I'm hopefully going to Australia in August as well because uh, Ensemble Offspring are performing a piece of mine in the Melbourne Recital Centre. August is, is again a wee bit, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that that'll come together. I'll make that call in June because I think they'll probably be making the call on whether the concert's happening around June as well. So I'm going over there playing the piece that they played as part of the night with last year, Rama, and then I'm recording it while I'm there to then release as a single later on in the year afterwards. One of the other things as well, which I've been involved in this year is the Scottish Awards for New Music. I help New Music Scotland, the organisation that runs it, in doing the social media and updating bits and pieces of the website, etc. But the awards were meant to be happening on the 13th of April. What you've been describing there are, I guess, a number of kind of contingency plans or you know adaptations that that you're having to make and that people you work with are having to make uh, in order to postpone performances events um, conferences things like that but what do you think would be if you were to stand back and think about the what the main issues are are facing composers and musicians now as a result of the crisis and maybe if you're kind of projecting ahead you know to further ahead to what what you know are we going to be encountering any any long-term issues as a re- as a result of this i am concerned what the long-term effects of this are going to be because like how, how the funding landscape is going to shift so one of the things that's been happening in scotland is creative scotland how about three weeks ago, closed down their main funding uh, round. They closed it down and redesigned it completely within about two weeks. What they've done is they've set up two, what used to be one fund, broken down into under 15,000, 15,000 to 100,000, 100,000 and up, into emergency grants for people who need it of between 500 and 2,500 pounds. Then they've changed the open project to be 50,000 pounds, up to 50,000 pounds, which is for what I would be applying for for concerts. Obviously, that's more geared toward online activity at the moment. My concern further down the line is how that shift in funding model for the moment to help with the very real and very present issue, will that shift back over and what the long-term effects of that shift one way or other will be will there be more people trying to apply because they've got all these ideas for concerts to put on which will be great because it'll be a, a glut of concerts but then that'll make funding even harder than it already is as as we all know it's the long-term uncertainty is the problem which i think will affect people more so will we see a drop off of these amazing performers going okay i can't risk that happening again i'm going to go and get a job in an office for example and leave the industry or will there be people going okay we need to de- we need to defend the work we've got even more 
or will it become more generous um, in the way we've seen with people giving living room performances and stuff and giving um, free performances online? I don't know. We're only, what, two weeks into this and it's quite hard to make projections, but these are all the thoughts that I've, I've had as well. And also the idea that if audience members have got used to listening to music on low quality audio streams, will they then go to concerts? One way is they'll go, oh, great. They'll discover all this great new music and great performers and then go, right, this person's doing a concert. I want to go and go to that and hear them live. Or they'll go, oh, well, that's good enough. I'll just stay at home and listen to the audio stream. Like has happened with the shift from high quality CDs through to low quality MP3s and low quality earphones to then streaming using that kind of audio degradation. So you're saying it could be a really big blossoming of new audience members for new music or even the core audience could just be staying at home, really. That's your concern. Yeah, it could go one of either way and I'm not quite sure which way yet. It's a very valid point. I mean, I've been speaking to musicians sort of saying, oh, I'm so missing the engagement that I have with being in front of an audience. That absolute great buzz, I think, unfortunately can't be quite replicated with an online situation. I'm trying to have faith, Matthew, that uh, (laughs) audiences will increase when we do get the possibilities of going back to concerts. Are there any kind of clear initiatives that you would like to see put in place? What should we really be advocating for to arts councils and to government departments to really have in place long term to support artists, perhaps over the next 12 months? There was a letter from the Ivors uh, Academy, they used to be the Basca, to the controller of BBC Radio 3, basically going, this is happening, composers and performers aren't getting performances in the way they normally do, broadcast more music by living composers and living performers. And I think that's something that should happen. A thought that struck me, and you're talking about the fact that you've got commissions that are lined up for later in the year, and a commission really to a composer is money in the bank because you're getting your payment for when you begin it and getting your payment for when when you deliver the final score. So from your perspective, would it be an advantage to increase commissioning funds? Definitely. Increasing commissioning funds would hugely benefit composers in general. That would give them a longer term stability as well. Even before this thing happened, just the the slight struggle of trying to plan 12 to 18 months in advance. And I'd like to be planning further in advance than that, but I can't quite get over that 18 month hump with the way the funding system works. Having commissioning funds open where you could commission maybe three years in advance would be excellent because then that gives longer term stability. You mentioned that Classical Next has been cancelled. That's not a financial impact to you immediately. But, you know, you have had a very successful track record at that conference, at that trade fair. I know because we've both been part of the delegation from Ireland. You were a PRS fellow and you also then conducted a, a mentoring session last year. I am reflecting on things like that that have been cancelled where, as I say, there's not an immediate financial effect for someone like yourself or for an organization such as ourselves. But the planning and the kind of long-term profile contacts, developments of new projects that really can happen during the three or four intense days at Classical Next, we have to take those things into consideration as well. They're a little bit harder to quantify because they're very long term and, you know, not as tangible as concerts being cancelled, but they're very real nonetheless. Would you agree? 
I would def, as you say, it's harder to quantify because quantifying relationship building, you can't say, oh, I've built this relationship by 50% this year. I'll build the other 50% next year. It doesn't work like that. You could just meet the right person at the right time at Classical Next, which has happened to me. Part of the reason for the concert in Australia is because the mentor through my PRSF Classical Next Fellowship is the artistic director of the Melbourne Recital Centre, Marshall McGuire. And I mentioned that I was writing for Ensemble Offspring. I went, oh, great. I'd be meaning to have them for a while. So that came together just through chance conversations at Classical Next. The longer term problems with things like Classical Next being cancelled for this year are impossible to quantify, but will have a knock-on effect. Yesterday, actually, I went to, I say I went to a conference, but I wasn't, it was in my living room. It was the AIM Sync conference that was meant to be held at the Barbican yesterday, but they moved it completely online and just made it free to members of the MU and Ivers, etc. Basically, the sessions were held as a live stream on YouTube, but with all the panelists zooming in. So it was very well managed and quite a good way to shift something that should have been in-person conference online. They did have networking sessions set up and a few listening sessions set up, but they were very, very limited just through the nature of an event like that. And it prevented the chance conversations when you're in the lift or when you're having coffee or it's not a criticism for what they did because it was excellent what they did in such a short period of time. But if online meetings like this end up becoming the norm for too long, there may be a risk that people go, oh, well, that's the easier and the cheaper way to do it. Let's just do that and reduce the in-person benefits. Traveling is still a very important part of our industry, really. The, the first meeting you have with someone is generally better to have in person, a five-minute in-person meeting, and then you can do everything else on Skype or email, etc. But having that initial, okay, this person is someone who I trust and want to work with in person. Travel is, is, is needed for what we do. But, but it, there's the balance yeah. with the environmental impact yeah. Of, yeah. of that. Yeah. Is that good? Is that bad? Is it that important? Is it more that we're sort of clinging on to, to how things were done before this? And if you take what you just described in terms of being able to have a conference-like experience from your living room or your, your study... Okay, it doesn't completely replicate it, but the digital at least allows you to get close to that kind of experience. Nothing replicates meeting somebody face to face and being in the same physical space as them. But there are so many other concerns at the moment. There is a pandemic in the future. There may be more pressing environmental reasons for us not to travel how do you reconcile that need as a composer, as a musician, to travel, to uh, to interact with, with different audiences, to make new contacts with all of those changes? There has never been a pause on economic and travel activity in the way that this has been anywhere at any point in the world. There has been upsets through wars or economic um, recessions and crashes but there's never been a, right, we need to stop. It's an interesting experiment, as much as anything to kind of go, what? how does this work? Mm. And then also trying to start things back up again in some form, whether it is, as you say, back to normal, or whether it's 
a reduced normal or because we live in a capitalist society, unless there is some massive way to discourage that, the flights will appear. People will be able to get those flights and all of it will go back to normal. One of the things I wanted to ask you was the role of the digital space and how it's proving now to be so important for artists but as you know working digitally has its challenges you know as we've seen over the last decade when it comes to musicians trying to generate income through it are you hopeful and thinking about the the sort of long term or the lasting impacts of this crisis uh, that rather than it going back to the normal as it were as it was before but that this might actually lead to a more equitable online music industry that will benefit composers like yourselves and not just the sort of top selling artists. I would love to be that hopeful. <laughs> Based on Spotify's reaction to the this virus issue, they have not bowed down to calls for increased royalty payments. They have donated $5 million to a number of charitable trusts. One of them, I think, was Help Musicians and PRSF to, to then give out to artists and composers who are struggling. On one hand, that seems like a very charitable and nice thing for them to do. But on the other hand, for as you're saying, a long-term and more sustainable thing would be to pay more royalties or pay fairer royalties rather than necessarily more royalties. This is something that has... I've spoken to you about before the kind of my slight crusade along with other other people uh, to move the payment system over from the current pro rata system to a user centric system. And in a nutshell, what that means is at the moment, your roughly ten pounds a month to Spotify gets gets chucked into a pot with everyone else's ten ten pounds, and divided by the number of streams that hit thirty seconds in that given period, which. It's problematic for long form music of all kinds and long form and niche music, because it means that if you only stream one track in a month, you're only triggering one payment. The rest of your money, your roughly £9.98.7p, p goes to everyone else in the pot. So you're not actually supporting the people you're listening to. However, with the user-centric version, your payment goes straight to what you listen to. So if you only stream one track in a month then all of your distributable subscription money goes to that one person or one group of rights holders obviously spotify takes their 30 percent cuts so that's not really taken into account in those calculations but if spotify used this opportunity to go right we're going to be fairer and move it over to a user-centric system i think that would hugely help at the moment it's the only source of income apart from subsidy and you know emergency funds and 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 whatnot that's available to artists you mentioned live streams um who knows maybe that can be adapted to generate income for artists but at the moment it's all in the digital space we know that it doesn't seem to be favoring smaller producers that have a a, a you know a more of a, a niche following and that's not right and a crisis like this one should hope force some of that ch those changes that people have been advocating for including yourself for a number of years to happen 
I think one of the things that needs to happen to make that change happen is for listeners to realize what's going on. Whenever I talk to an everyday listener who isn't involved with the industry side of music, they're just someone that likes listening to music, and I tell them about this, the pro rata versus user-centric system, they assumed that it was user-centric. When you describe what pro rata means, they're often totally gobsmacked and go, but I'm paying, I thought I was paying for the music that I'm listening to. So I think it's as much a wider awareness building of the unfairness of digital royalties. Matthew, you have selected for us um, some recordings that you're particularly fond of at the moment. Um, there's works by uh, fellow composers who are based in, in Scotland and also a work by yourself. So maybe you tell us a little bit about why you've selected these recordings and, and who they're from. The first recording is David Fennessy's Herter Rounds. Dave was my composition teacher in the conservatoire, or one of my composition teachers in the conservatoire. And this is just a beautiful, beautiful piece for unconducted string orchestra. I heard the premiere of it at uh, the fruit market in Glasgow a number of years ago, and then heard it again last year in Tallinn. It's also part of an album that was released last year on NMC called Panopticon. The album itself is shortlisted for the recording category in this year's Scottish Awards for New Music, which will be, the awards will be done through a YouTube uh, stream on the 13th of April. So if you want to watch in, it'll be available then and you'll find out whether Dave's won or not. I have no idea. In Tallinn as well, I had spent a lot of time listening to music. It was part of World Music Days and I was there for a week and a half last year and bumped into Jonathan when I was there. But I used the time to, as a kind of self-directed composition residency, because at the time I was thinking of my upcoming album and I was still trying to finish off the album and work out what the final piece was going to be. And in Tallinn, I started writing what turned into my quartet number six. Weirdly, once I finished it, I realized that it was heavily influenced by kind of Pert sound world, which was totally unmeant, even though I started it in Estonia, just a slightly interesting <laughs> combination. The third piece that I've chosen is Linda Buckley's Oscillate. Thank you. 
This is a piece for viola, accordion, and electronics, which I commissioned as part of the Night West last year, and was the one of the first commissions as, as part of the season performed in August by Gio Van Vliet. piece explores Linda's interest in Moog synthesizers and is quite influenced by that kind of sound world and it's also recorded we also recorded it live and released it as part of the Night With Live Volume 1 album which was released two weeks ago and the Night With as well is shortlisted for the programming category in the Scottish Awards for New Music as well so Linda's piece is also part of that Matthew Thanks so much for your time and uh, for giving your thoughts uh, on a whole wide range of issues and subjects and for bringing along, as it were, three pieces by your fellow Irish stroke Glasgow-based composers. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew Whiteside. And to listen in full to the three pieces selected by Matthew, please see the show notes for this podcast. We also include links to purchase the albums for these tracks as well, and we encourage you to purchase them, as well as recordings by other Irish composers, as this is one of the very real ways that you can support composers and musicians during this time. Finally, harpist and composer Una Monaghan. And Yvonne, this is one of a number of interviews we recorded during the New Music Dublin Festival and we hope to be including a selection of these over the coming weeks as a way, I guess, of documenting some of the work produced during these three days in late February, early March. Yeah, Una's concert, Jonathan, as you know, uh, was on the opening night of New Music Dublin and uh, a work, a fairly substantial work by her that was written as part of her Liam O'Flynn Award. And, um, you know, I think this was a really positive development in terms of uh, inclusion of this work in the programme because, you know, as as we see, as we know um, in the Contemporary Music Centre, many artists are living in that really interesting world where contemporary music, traditional music or folk music from, from across the world and electronics are meeting. And, you know, we're enjoying that as, as audiences, I, I think, very much over the last number of years. So for me, this was very positive that a work by... Una, who who lives in that very interesting musical world, was included in in New Music Dublin, and um, I was struck when when I listened back to the interview that you did with her that you know she had so much to consider in this work. Well, I was struck while I was standing there in the audience listening to it as well that uh, you know she was performing in it. She was also across all the technical aspects of the electronics um, in the work as well, and and really thought through the production values and the presentation and how to engage the audience. So here is Una Monaghan. Una Monaghan and uh, I just had a concert last night at New Music Dublin. So the last time I spoke to you Una you were 
working in a different role, uh, you were doing the, the sound for Jenny Walsh's opera. Is it a kind of a different experience when you're, when you're performing and you're, you're putting on uh, pieces that you've, that you've composed? It really is. It's the, the hardest part is remembering that yesterday I had a different role and that a lot of what I was usually concerned with wasn't my concern. So uh, I, I asked Tim Matthew to come, who is a brilliant engineer. Um, he's someone who I've shadowed from when I was really young. Uh, he's taught me almost all of the engineering that I know. And um, I was just so happy he was free. So it was a real relief to give it to an engineer that I trusted with everything. So tell me about the piece itself, because this is the kind of culmination of a long kind of period of work that you've uh, presumably coinciding with your residency here in the concert hall. So maybe just tell me a little bit what it's what it's about, the idea behind it and what you wanted to achieve. It went back a bit, bit further as well than the, the concert hall residency. It's something I've been thinking of doing for probably 10 years now. Um, and that was to have solo pieces of music for traditional musician and computer. And what the computer did, that was a, an intentionally vague kind of term, was to make sure that, that I asked each musician what they wanted the computer to do or it became obvious as we developed the piece what, what interaction was going to happen, what sounds were going to be there. For example, one of the pieces last night was uh, simple tape and acoustic instrument. Um, so it was fixed media, it was all done beforehand. But all of the other ones had live electronics processed from the sound on the night and um, controlled and, and interactive uh, during the concert. So I wanted to make it so that there were, were separate pieces for separate instruments. Um, in my head, I've got the first six of these. I identified 12 common traditional instruments uh, that are used in traditional music. And uh, the first six was last night, and I'm going to work on the next six now for the next two years, probably. So it's, it's very much about uh, the relationship between a performer and his or her instrument, as opposed to um, what a lot of people would associate with traditional music, music in that, you know, this group performance. I mean, why is that in kind of important and why did you kind of centre on that as, a, as an approach to this collection of pieces? There's probably a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that I play on my own a lot anyway, and I think that's a combination of the fact that I play the harp, which has its own accompaniment and has a tradition of playing solo in, in Irish traditional music anyway. But also just sometimes your your direction just works out that you've never really been in a band. I mean, I play sessions and I've played with other people at different points, but at no time did I ever really form a band. And so it's given me, it's made me kind of used to playing on my own. And so so I was writing for other people playing on their own. There, there is a, while traditional music is, is often heard in group contexts, we all play on our own and, and there is a, an older tradition of solo playing and traditional music going back years but it's not how it's normally presented um, and then lastly the other thing is if you're working with electronics it's really it's tough enough to get them to do what you want when you want them to to, to start electronics is relatively easy to make them stop isn't so easy to develop a meaningful interaction is difficult um, and to decide what sounds you want and how that's going to combine with or derive from the instrument that you're writing for. They're all really long processes that require a lot of thought and engineering. And to, to do that across multiple people playing, you know, is arguably just making the problem worse. <laughs> so I wanted to start with a solo instrument in electronics and really look into and decide, 
it gave me the space to decide what the electronics were doing and how it, how it was interactive if it was just one musician. And how did you work um, through that process of um, working working with the individual musicians to develop the piece and, and, and decide on what, what electronics to use? Because obviously it's very different from writing a piece of concert music where it's scored and it's handed off to the performers. It's obviously presumably a lot more kind of um, interactive workshop based process. The first thing I would do is identify the musician themselves. Like, who, who, Although I wanted to write for an instrument, I thought, well, which player of this instrument is going to work here? And there's a few layers to that, you know. One is that they're great players. Two is that they have some sense of wider creativity beyond traditional tunes. Uh, and the third is that there's, there is or has the potential to have a, some sort of relationship there with me because this process is... Um, it's, it evolves and it requires there to be no issue between the humans, you know. You have to be able to to be comfortable working with someone. And that can be even just that you have similar ideas or, or that you're at least able to communicate. And one of the things I noticed about that is that is fear. You know, you can't have fear there. And I mean fear kind of, even if it's someone that I really, really respect to the point of awe, you, you need to get that out of the way, otherwise you can't properly work on the music, or I find it difficult to. So finding people that were going to work on all of those levels wasn't you know, just a quick process either, because we spent time, like I say, working on, on how to make that happen. And then if at any point they would come and say, this bit's not working for me, well, there, there was, I'm pretty sure there was never a situation where I was saying, well, it's going to have to. You know, we then adapt, because... I'm a musician as well, and and I had to play there last night too. And we want everyone to have the best night. And it's there's a difference between playing something till you get it properly, you know, a technical issue, and and just not feeling like the concept is working for you. Or there's an importance placed on your own approach to things. And so writing a piece of music and transplanting it onto a traditional musician and saying, do this and only this, is just a, a process that I find totally alien to success with that musician. I mean, traditional musicians aren't usually common from the point of view of reading music anyway. So the, these instructions and agreements are going to be more likely arrived at from the point of view of conversation. Um, I mean, I have graphic scores for quite a few of the pieces um, but they're not made as graphic scores. You know, I draw something and ask them to play it. It's more that we, I, I would come up with what wanted to happen, and then the ways that that was documented was more likely to be blocks of diagram than um, music notation. There was one exception, which was the piece for concertina and electronics, which was um, from the folk RNN, a, a, a recurring neural network, which is so a piece of... AI really um, and it has been trained on all of these tunes on the session.org and was able to spit out thousands of tunes in the traditional style so Jack Talty played three of those and um, they are very like traditional tunes and he ornamented them in the traditional style so he, he read those from sheet music which is how the, the computer spat them out but everything else, uh, the diagrams for those pieces are a bit more colourful and um, shapes rather than notes.
I, I, didn't I read in the notes somewhere that when you discussed this with with musicians that they were you know quite um, sort of wary of it uh, of of the of the of the idea of a of a machine you know producing these tunes which obviously tune in in, in a traditional context has so much meaning and it's it's so important to the whole kind of culture. Yeah, I mean traditional music like any music has its conservatism as well. Um, so there's understandably in, in some quarters a bit of unease about computers writing our tunes. There are some people that think it might be the antithesis of, of traditional music. I, I just find it to be something that's changing all the time and it's fact now anyway that you can tr- train these computers on, on this data and they will produce something. And what do you think that is? changes for everyone but I just really like the opportunity to present those pieces as a computer written tunes and then put my um, fixed media piece with them that, so that was the one you mentioned that one, um, some of them had live electronics that was the one with the fixed media was it? Yeah and so the tape part for that was I liked the idea that the computer had learned how to make Irish music and I used um, me learning the computer tunes. I recorded myself learning them as I would learn any tune. So it was spat out in sheet music, and I, I play bars at a time. I play phrases, then I repeat the phrases, then I get the part, and then I. So I recorded myself learning these with all the repetition that would, that takes, and I then had a whole, you know, a, a, an amount of recordings of concertina sounds, including all of the R and the buttons and everything else. So the the tape part was made of me learning the computer's music and the computer's music was learnt from traditional music. So it was a wee bit of a mirror, really. One of the other things that struck me about the, the piece last night was that there were there was obviously a shifting focus on the on the and the door has been closed into the room, so we have acoustic changes all over the shop and interruptions. <laughs> Yeah, that's the nature of the beast. But you, there were different focuses in the space, and it also you also moved around. You know the the the, the space. What what was the kind of reason be behind doing this? I just wanted to take the concept as far as it could go. I mean, if I'm thinking of separate musicians playing separate pieces, well, why would they all be in the same stage? You know, kind of like a musical church when one goes off and the other comes on and sits in the same space can we make those spaces in in different physical places and I did wonder about the sense of making six different performance locations because that comes with its own uh, challenges in terms of the tech required and I did wonder in the run-up am I just is this just overkill you know is is there a need for this is there a need for the the extra hire and the extra personnel and when I got into the space during the sound checks I thought I'm really glad we did this there were small stages you know but I felt that it added to the strength of the solo pieces that they were physically in different locations. Una Monaghan. And that's all for this week's episode. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. And please also consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you get your podcasts there, as this helps us reach more listeners. We hope to be back next week. 
Until then, bye for now and stay safe, everyone.